0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by InvestTech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, my guest is William Leith. I should say, swiftly, no relation, though we perhaps have a lot in common. William's new book is The Cut That Wouldn't Heal, Finding My Father, which is a very moving memoir of the death of his father and much else besides. William, welcome. Well, thank you. Now, you know, your book sort of opens... On Your Father's Deathbed. Yes. When, what was the point, how soon after that did you know that this was going to be a book?
1: I suppose, you know, I'm, I always write about myself and whenever something important happens, there's always something making me think, yes, I'm going to be writing about this. I thought about it for a while, took, took some notes, and about two years it took before I, I wrote a, that scene. For a piece in The Guardian. And I don't know why, I just called them and said, or emailed them and said, read this, you know. And it was that scene, it was almost word for word, except that the very end of the book, the scene includes the very end, whereas in the book it, it doesn't get to the very end, you know. So I, there's, there's a bit at the end when I'm talking to him when he's dead which was included in the piece. And then I, I kind of thought that that's the framework of an entirely, uh, a much bigger story. So I left it for a while. I was doing something else, which was really not working or rather I had to really struggle with it to work. And it was a book about this guy who was, uh, had been a fraudster, had come out of jail and was trying to create this new career of, about teaching people how to be rich. And he was a really interesting character and compelling and kind of strange. And I found myself trying to write about this guy and write about myself instead, which was is always my problem. So I was wrestling in this narrative with, but it's about him. <laughs> but then how can I make it about me? <laughs> so that I was doing that and it took years. And in the end, it became this book which, I was happy with, sort of, but that took all my energies. And then, having finished that, I suddenly got, remembered that piece that i have written, which was, here I am, he's about to die, and I'm, I'm already in shock, and I don't know what, how I'm going to deal with this. And I've been like that for hours, because I, I've known it's going to happen pretty much that day and I'm in this hospital. But I've also been like that for weeks because I've seen it creeping along. And then sort of creeping and then um, going very fast. That thing that somebody said, how do you go broke? You know, very slowly and then suddenly very fast. And I once described it, uh, well, we'll get into the, the Princess Diana Memorial thing maybe later, but that's an example. I was watching it on telly and it was gonna pass the end of my road. And I thought, I'm going to be there to, to watch the coffin as it goes past. And I was watching it on television and they were going so slowly. I thought, right, it's going to be about 40 minutes before she gets to the end of my road. But then the car was going very slowly at hearse level, but then it picked up speed and it was going at 30 miles an hour. And I had to sprint and I just got there as the car passed. So it was like at very slowly, hearse-level speed, followed by a sprint. And I thought that's that's how everything happens. And in fact, I wrote about that. There's this whole theory about that's how an ice cube melts, or that's how you fall in love. Everything happens. Uh, There's just one moment when it all happens. Before that, it's been preparing to happen. Yeah. So that's the thing that I was thinking of and what I came up with again was, you know, those last 10 seconds, very intense, absolutely uh, seared on my memory. And of course, memory is, a, I go into this in the book a bit, memory is notoriously fickle. Yeah. I read this guy who studied memory and he said something like, it sells out to the highest bidder, meaning it sells out to your fear or to your pride or your shame. You know, the thing which in your mind is wanting to dominate will try and control your memory. So I know all that.
0: Well, there's something about those, those last few seconds that obviously, well, I want to say it sort of bugs you in some way, that at the moment before your father dies, you get up and walk away.
1: I know. That Even it's... just
0: a few paces, but you come back and back and back to this. And I'm wondering what, what was the bidder, what was the emotion in that Uh,
1: yeah this is that was the strangest and most shameful thing that i was sitting there in this room and there were eight men and there was one who i thought had already died and the one on the other side of him had died the day before and there were these nurses and there was this funny buzz of noise as i say so so he he was taking his last breaths and that's what I was noticing the breath goes in and then it comes out and at the end of the let's say you've got 10 breaths to go at the end of the breath you're thinking can he breathe in again it's looking less likely than it was before and it's more of a struggle each time and you know that in a minute or in 10 seconds or whenever it is he's not going to breathe in again and that the last breath that comes out is different from all the other exhalations because it's not performed by a kind of uh, neurological and muscular activity. It's just air coming out, like air coming out of a balloon. You know, it's, it's just that some Newtonian thing propels the air out. So it's not the body kind of letting it out. And once you've seen that, you think, oh, my God, that's it. And some part of you is sure that that's it. And there I am sitting next to the bed and there's this tremendous fear of of this thing happening, this death, even though he's sort of incapacitated and he, he, you know, it's been an hour or whatever it is since he's been able to communicate with hand signals and he's sinking. But the final thing is so sort of, well, it's so final. And at the moment, before it happened you know how when and here's a trivial example but i was watching this football match yesterday with my brother and it was very tense for me and jubilant for him but anyway i i said oh god i can't go through with this they're gonna lose i know it blah 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 And I said, can you imagine being watching this and you're you're somewhere in the tropics and you've got a balcony and the sea and you can just cut out from the tension of this match and just stand on the balcony and watch the sea and it's as if it's not even happening. And that's a very minor example because it's not death, it's just a football match. But in these stressful situations, you want to get away. Some part of you wants to get away as if it's not happening. And I think part of it is that urge. and And I think... I want to get away and go for a walk and then come back and have a few moments when I'm doing something else because this is so unbearable. And maybe that was the main motivation, but I'm sure there were much sort of more horrible and shameful motivations. And when I stepped away from him, and I did two steps, I'm at the end of the bed, so I've left him and that's when the last breath comes out. So of course his heart stops beating before the last breath. So it was at the exact moment that his heart stopped beating that I walked away from him, which sort of haunted me. And I then went to the nurse and I was thinking, I've got to tell the nurse that he's died and I couldn't do it. So I said to the nurse, I just got to tell you that my father is, is kind of in a bit of trouble. I think he's in a bit of trouble. Like he's having a bit of trouble maybe the sort of thing you'd say you, you know he's this coffee isn't very good he's having a bit of trouble could you get some better milk for it or something or like I'd been doing before you know he's, he's in a bit of trouble can you get him some morphine so I said he's in a bit of trouble and she looked at me and said oh um okay and she hadn't noticed just like she hadn't noticed when I thought the other guy had died because they're buzzing about with their clipboards and so she said and I thought perhaps slightly rudely, will you wait in the corridor? Like you you did have the status of being somebody who wander around this place where people are dying. But now you've said this to me and I know what it means. You have to now go away. So I went away <clears throat> towards the nurse's reception or whatever, waited there. And eventually another nurse came out and she said to me, he's died, in other words, she said, I'm terribly sorry to tell you I think he's passed or something like this. And I thought, well. I just told you that. And, and, and so this very bizarre sort of strange psychological dance happened after this, which is that, that, that they had put the curtains around him, which is this very ritualistic thing, which they had done with the man next to him when he, they thought he was dead. And I thought he was dead. And he turned out not to be. And they did all this thing of the curtains around the man. And he really looked dead. He looked deader than my father did. And then this man screamed because they prodded him or something behind the curtains. And there was this sort of sign of life. And then they quickly undid the curtains and went off. Anyway, now the curtains were around my father. And so I, I had told the nurse he died in my mind. And then she came and the other nurse came to tell me the same thing. And then I was talking to him after he died. I said, can I go and see him? You know, And I carried on the conversation I was having with him. And I would then find myself telling him he'd died. So I was saying, <clears throat> yes. The thing is, um, I've just been talking to the nurses. I mean, I, I just sort of mentioned this because uh, I'm sure you know part of you can hear me, which I sort of think that maybe he, part of him, could, because there's a, some anaerobic life of the brain after the heart stops beating. And then I said, well, you see, the thing is, um, the nurse said. I mean, she said that. Um, that you died and, you know, I guess, and I, I'm now telling him he's died. Um, and that, that was the start of much madness, which was the product of the, the hours of waiting for that moment to happen. And after it happened, I, I sort of, I'd already been, I think, in some kind of shock. Now I was in some kind of profound shock. Anyway, so various things happened after that which didn't appear in the original piece. And that was what a lot of the book was about. It's this what yeah. happens when death arrives, you know, visibly in your life. And, and it's very weird because, as I said, we're the only animals that know they're gonna die, probably, I mean, they say elephants do, but can you imagine elephants? Do they think, oh, you know, this elephant over there is going to die and then what will happen they probably they might have an inkling but we know about this from the age of three or four and know it's going to happen to us and to everybody we know and we developed such a, a culture of partly of denial partly of trying to deal with it in some way all sorts of things whether it's whether it's church you know and and people of our generation probably i mean you're younger than me but chapel and church was very um i mean i, I wasn't a uh, believer but still a very important chapel and church and, and 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 the rituals of that so when death actually comes in there you do and you see it and it is very um strange and i i had mentioned the V. knausgard's whole thing about when somebody dies there's this panic of let's cover them up let's put them in an unmarked van let's take them to a place um, as low as close to the ground as possible let's then cover the body And there are even sort of, in hospitals, there are even sort of routes that you take the dead. It's not just, oh, well, you know, he's died. Can't get any worse than that. So let's have a cup of tea and is anybody available to do the next thing, whatever. It's like there's this highly evolved ritual of taking the covered body. You know, the curtains come round. So even the people who are themselves about to die, Sort of don't get to see it. They can't see the, the face of the dead or whatever. And so there's a little way in which you... I mean, when my grandfather died, I and this really gave me the creeps, I went to his house. My mother, his, his daughter, was there. So I, I came and said, oh, you know, I'm so sorry about this, etc. And she said he's here and I said yes of course of course he, he's in a way he's everywhere and she said no he's here so I said yes no I, I completely see he's in all of our minds right now we're all thinking about him and she said no he's in the other room and I said oh how do you mean and she said well he always had this he'd always wanted to be in an open coffin in this particular room and I said, what, you mean his, it, what? And, and I, uh, I said, do I have to, I mean, what am I going to do? And she said, well, you can go and see him or not. And I said, have you seen him? And she said, uh, yes, yes, I've seen him. So I then became obsessed with who in this room has seen him? So I said, has anybody else seen him? My, my father at this point said, no, I don't think I'm going to. So I thought I must do it. And I went into the room, there was a coffin. This is my grandfather, this, is, this was 30 years before. So he was covered with a kind of linen cloth or maybe like a starched handkerchief over his face. And I thought I'm gonna to have to reach in there. I'm not just gonna look at a starched handkerchief and I'm going to take the thing off and look at his face. I owe him that. If he wanted to be an open coffin, it's because he wanted people to look at him. So I did. And the shock that sort of like, that galvanized me, you know, the, the, uh, something went through me and it was horrifying and had this peculiar effect because I, I, I realized my brother was about to arrive. So part of my mind thought he must not go and see this. I must t- talk him out of it why would I want to talk my brother out of seeing this dead face which incidentally looked quite good I mean he he looked much younger a a wax effigy of his younger self like when he was 40 or something he was you know a very old man But, but somehow death had been kind to his or perhaps the the embalming process had been kind to his face but when I got back into the other room, <clears throat> I was obsessed with, um, will my brother see it? And I think he didn't want to. But later that night, I couldn't sleep because I thought, my brother's going to creep down and see the face. He's going to creep down in the dark. And I could not imagine anything worse, you know, like him put, putting a, there, there being some kind of torch or something. And the reason we don't live with that all the time is that we were very clever at, you know, denying it, avoiding it, thinking things like, well, it's not going to happen to me for ages. And so I don't have to think about it, but that haunting thing does break through. Yeah. I also mentioned, if you read about death, it's a guy and he wrote a book called Cynical Theories.
0: Oh yes, I know you mean.
1: And and there's a guy, and he's and this book about and before that he'd written this book about death, and it's really good. So his idea being, the the more
0: you get used to the idea, the better off you are, you know. That's becoming more widely held. But I I want to just divert you for a second because this is, you know, the premise of this book. It's not a general death. This is a very particular death. This is a particular person, and. I want you to try and give me a sense, if you can, of, of your, what your father was like and how, how that sort of shaped the way you wrote about it and the effect that the death had on you.
1: Yes. Well, <clears throat> he was always very secretive. I mean, I'm completely the opposite. <laughs> I spend my time t- saying, you know, oh, by the way, do you want to hear about this? This is my last thought. This is what happened to me today. Whereas he was... N- the opposite he was also very absentee the classic absentee but beyond being emotionally absent he was physically absent he would live in a different country even though there was some kind of sense mostly fictional that he was sort of still around but he but so he'd always have a place in a different country but he wasn't even there you know you you'd you'd get a postcard from him he'd be living in holland and occasionally appearing, and then I get a postcard from him, and he'd from India or something, or from Africa, or from um, you know, so a communist country or something, because he that's where he was all, he was also going to these places.
0: He's an academic psychologist,
1: wasn't he? I mean, this was his he was a psychologist, and he had this he, he worked for UNESCO, which employed psychologists to. I mean, employed all sorts of people. But what he did was he would go and there there were various psychologists from, I guess, America and some from Canada, but one particular one from Germany and another one from Holland. And these were his kind of tight group of friends, not exactly friends, but colleagues. And they would go all over. And I didn't know what they were doing or anything. And he would never really talk about it. He was expert at not talking about it for some reason. And it was, it was to do with, I think, and what I found out, it was to do with, if you've got a place, my, my example is Bulgaria, you get all these, um, I suppose funded by the United Nations, all these psychologists and their expertise is how people develop a mindset, you know, and, and how you can, uh, how, how that, I mean, people are talking about this quite a lot now. You, you know, people didn't understand what I said when I was trying to work it out before, but, you, you know, and how, what, what's the curriculum? What are teachers teaching people and how is it affecting them? And essentially what they were looking at, I suppose, is are these Bulgarian, the United Nations wanted to know, are these Bulgarian school children and students being, uh, are, are they being made into communists? And if so, how, how is that being taught? That sort of thing. So all of these people who were experts in do, the development of a mindset, shall we say, including my father's friend, this guy, Carl Heinz, who, was, um, who came into my life quite a lot, and a few of them did. And it must have been very incredibly sort of wearing and really, stre- I suppose, a bit stressful. And some of these- Why?
0: Why was he like that, do you think? I mean, the marriage clearly survived.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> Why was he like that? Do you mean, why was he secretive?
0: Why was he secretive? Why was he content to be so absent or, or keen to be so absent? I,
1: I had a conversation, you, you know, that's... My brother and I, I had a conversation with him yesterday about that. Um And we. it will come into our conversation. Do you think he he couldn't cope with normal family life? Or do you think he was driven to do this work? And did one did going off and doing this work sort of make him into a more distant person. You know, it's got to be something to do with how, you know, his mother, you you know, his two elder sisters died before he was born. And his mother was a sort of, she ended up getting to nearly 98. So there was a tremendous life force in her, but she was a force of depression. She was kind of like vitally depressed, you might say. (laughs) You know, and, and I got to know her towards the end of her life because my parents were abroad and she was living in London and I would go and see her. And God, she was sort of a mixture of angry and bitter and, but wanting to tell people about it, i.e. me. And both her daughters had died. And in fact, her mother and brother had died of tuberculosis in 1910 or something very close to each other her father then remarried she went off to live with an aunt in berwick on tweed and you know grieving her her life had completely broken and then she then she got married and had these two kids who died and she blamed herself so when my father came along he was living in this house of mourning do you see what i mean and and yeah and he also then got Uh, a whole raft of childhood diseases, you know, bad, you know, rheumatic fever and that sort of thing. And his health was terrible as a child, and and they thought he was going to die. So he was surrounded by these mourning, grieving, and slightly bickering people, because I think my grandfather probably, you know, they were both upset with each other about the nature and and the, the, the kind of um, quality of each other's grieving. Do you know what I mean? Their life had been ripped apart by the loss of their two children. And you can't, I mean, that, it must, you know, losing one and then the other. And whose fault was it exactly? And they, they developed this cover story as well, that they died in a gas leak because they were very guilty that they died, in fact, of pneumonia. Was the pneumonia something to do with my grandmother had been obsessed with, with not giving her daughter the proper clothes. She didn't put a coat on. You know, I should have given her this coat, but she didn't want it. And, and now look. And the grief that my grandmother had over the death of the first daughter was, you know, my, my grandfather apparently. And I was never told this by them, but my father was told this by a neighbor, that death of the second my grandfather said oh look we've we've still got one daughter let's just put all our effort into that And my grandmother was saying oh but don't you see it's it can never we can never bring the other one back and there was I think there was there'd been a real falling out between them over how to deal with all of this so that's that's how the 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 house my father grew up in fast forward many years becoming a psychologist and he was very obsessive. You know. And he didn't want
0: children himself, did he? He
1: didn't want children himself. And, and, you know, I can completely see why not.
0: But that sort of obviously bugs you. Yes, mm-hmm. well, I
1: mean, of course. Yeah. You, you know, you come along and, and you're unwanted by your father, which was completely true. And, of course, I think to myself, of course he didn't want me. Of course he didn't want children because it had all been, everything had been tragic. What he wanted to do was to get into some intellectual subject so deeply that he didn't even have to connect with people, which he did all his life. And whether it was his <laughs> psychological, you know, whether it was the data taken from early computers about um, how people's mindsets developed. You know, B.F. Skinner and all of this kind of, um, who was one of his heroes, I suppose, intellectually anyway. Um, and he would get very deeply in. And he was also very obsessed with, um, you know, Beethoven and uh, is, are there, how, how are the patterns in these, whatever it is, symphony. Of course, I turned away from classical music completely because uh, he would spend hours listening over and over to these uh, composers from 300 years ago and try and find out how, how it was all working, which is an escape. Yeah. funny because, because the, the, the man next door had, all, had been in the war and had PTSD, I'm sure, and he would put headphones on and listen to music so he wouldn't have to talk to anybody. And I was thinking that, you know, <laughs> the, the aftermath of whatever it is, and these two man, men living next door to each other, probably both listening to the same pieces of music <laughs> and trying not to talk to anybody and, or to each other.
0: Something... I mean, this this idea of trauma and intergenerational trauma, I mean, something that that winds through the, the book is a story of your own recovery from alcoholism about the time yes. your father's dying. I mean, did you... Is your approach to this subject in a way sort of trying to investigate that as well? I mean, do you feel that that was bound up with your relationship to your father?
1: That Well, that's, that's interesting because, of course, why... Did I become a raging alcoholic? What was that about? I suppose some people do. And isn't it something like 10% of people? I don't know. And of course it had something to do with your childhood, that you can't get away from that. If, if something happens to you in adulthood and you, know, you have these patterns of behaviour, can, you can't get away from the fact that they were inculcated when you were um, developing. So, of course... And, 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 of course, my childhood was uh, moulded by the distant father and the fallout of his sudden moves to different places and the effect of that, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're going to live here now and you're going to have to do, go to boarding school or you're going to have to come with us or everything's going to change. So, obviously, I think, and I, I must have written about this many times, but... You you become very insecure in certain ways. You think that there's a little part of your brain which thinks if some if everything's working out, <clears throat> you think, well, you know, when, when are you going to get the um, the diagnosis or the or, or the bailiff or the w- the mob or whatever it is that's going to happen that's going to crush you when will somebody creep in <laughs> i was watching this have you have you seen four blocks the german thriller uh, which i i think is brilliant but <laughs> i was watching it in bed and and it's if it's so full of people with guns creeping up on people in in their houses like silently sneaking in and dispatching them <laughs> and I realized I was terrified because I could hear this. People were creeping around my And of course, it was a gate in the garden that was being blown in the wind. I didn't know that till the next day, but if I would drop off to sleep, there'd be this tapping. Why is there a tapping? And why, and my door blew uh, uh, closed uh, uh, and open and closed because a window was open, but that had to be somebody creeping. So I'm very, I've all, all of that stuff has never left me and, uh, and I, ha- I did write about it a lot before in various columns and books, the attempts to blank that out, anxiety, and drugs and alcohol do a very good job of that for a while. Sure do. I was gonna say, but they are, you, you, you know, the thing, the, the thing only gets worse. It, it doesn't stop the thing. It just sort of um, covers it up for a while.
0: Yeah. Did, I mean, there is a, it's a sort of slight parenthesis, but there are 10 days in your father's life, as you describe it, that are sort of unaccounted for. Yes. It's an Agatha Christie moment. I mean, do you think he was a spy or something? Is that what you're well, getting
1: at? People often used to say this to me in, in jest. No, I don't. But I do think that he—I uh, mean, he and these other people would go to troubled places like in Africa or in behind what they used to call the behind the Iron Curtain and the the Middle East. And they would interview lots of people, and they, and he would generate. They would generate this data about how, what what people were thinking. Like, are the academics becoming more? pro this or that you know in Egypt are they uh, there was something in the 60s in Egypt and I, I I think it was about the UNESCO people and the whatever wanted to know something about are these people you know in Egypt uh, how do they feel about Israel or Palestine or whatever you know because there maybe there'll be some conflict so it was a bit of sort of sort of connected to um, the, these events and and there certainly was a thing where there was a man in washington who we would go and see and unload all of these because he ended up collating I, I found this out he started out generating data and and then he would end up collating it so there'd be 10 people and then he'd, he'd write the report and i think there was a man in geneva who he would then take the report to and a man in washington and so Who were these people, I don't know, but I did sometimes meet them because the one time that he was available seemed to be either in the Easter holidays or the early summer holidays. And he and these people would stay in a hotel in Switzerland. That was their typical place, but it was sometimes Heidelberg or something. And sometimes France. But anyway, and we'd go and stay with them. And of course, it wasn't that we would talk to him very much because he was there to talk to all these other people. But yes, the, the missing 10 days were very peculiar. And the, I, I don't think I fully went into this, but the also getting stuck in Bulgaria in 68, which turned out to be because the, the, the Soviet Union invaded Prague or something on the 29th of August. Do you remember this? It's some kind of uprising was put down. Well, it's spring, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was, no, it was, wasn't it August. The, yeah, the uprising was in the spring, but they, as people say, the tanks come in or whatever it is in August. But anyway, Bulgaria was on the side of the Soviet Union. And so they, for some reason, it was, he stayed there for another 10 days. But, uh, but then there was the time when he went to Moscow and didn't come, ca- and was supposed to be in Canada and then didn't arrive, he just said, oh, oh, I, it was just, you know, difficult or whatever. And I have no idea. So, yes, <clears throat> that was all peculiar.
0: Yeah. Now, can I ask a bit how you shaped the book? Because it sort of loops back and forth. I mean, did, did you sort of, as it were, follow your nose or follow the lines of your memory? Or was there a sort of conscious attempt to kind of pin little motifs and moments and sort of string well, them think
1: um, I mean, you must know this, but if you're writing something that's, let's say, not long, but you know, tens of thousands of words, what you want to do is to focus people's attention and, and sort of tell the story so that people will be interested. And, and so that dominates how you tell a story in a way. So if I'm talking to you about something, the thing that guides me, which is sort of unconscious, is part of my mind knows what you already know and what I should be telling you about um, to to keep you interested. And and so it's sort of probably that unconscious thing makes you aware that you're trying to solve an emotional problem and you keep coming back to it. And like you pointed out, it's to do with that why did I step away from him and the theme of that, of him when I was born, of him as it were doing exactly the same to me and was there some resentment and also the very powerful thing of this is death and do you ever get to it? Well, of course you do but you know, when it happens to you. And of course that's James Lindsay, it popped up into my mind as the writer of the book on death, a very good book on death. Anyway, so there you are. A lot of people say, well death is, um, you you know, people have written, written all these theses on death in Shakespeare and so on and how death drives plots and, how death is the one thing you can't experience because you're not there the moment it happens. Um, it's a kind of anti-experience, a non-experience. And I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who'd had a general anaesthetic and said, it's, he thought this is exactly like dying, it's nothing like sleeping. And then we had a conversation about Michael Jackson's nightly general anaesthetics, incidentally, which is something to conjure with, but, the fact of death is the thing that that the narrative's about. It's happening and what's it doing to me? And what it's doing to me is it's, you know, in the 50 days when I, I say, I know that he's gonna die. I know it's gonna happen now. I'm pretty sure it's gonna happen. It's Part of me thinks it's it's gonna just go on forever, this slow dying, but no, it's gonna happen. And so, It's all about, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to live a normal life during this time because I'm just waiting for this thing to happen, which is terrifying. And also, like I said, you know, you can't experience your own death. And I don't know, I don't know what you think about death, your own impending, you know, or maybe even um, not so impending death, but it'll happen. I hope not so impending, but... Unless you're Aubrey de Grey, or (laughs) you know? Uh, and I, I mean, I, I did go and see him. <laughs> Tell me, please.
0: <laughs> this is the very bearded man who believes that we're going to live forever. The very bearded man. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Why such a beard? And I never said to him, you know, you can have a beard. It's fine. I, but having a, a beard that dramatic. I've only known one other person or met who, who, who had and of course, London is a, a, a place of beards now. So and I, I moved out of London, so I'm sure I'd see more dramatic beards. But why have it sort of two foot long? Anyway, 18 inches. But, you know, you must think that it, 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 it drives everybody. I think to myself. And I was having a conversation with somebody on Sunday, a brilliant guy. And he said to me anyway, he, he was making trying to make a film. And he would say, I think I've just got one left in me. And, and you think people measure out their life, you know, everything else in their life is measured by this impending thing. And I yeah. said, well, you might have four in you. You might get it, a- you might live to 90. But yes, how good will you be at doing all those things when you're 87? to say, probably not very good.
0: I mean, is it that, that the universality of death? Because I want you know, you do make a specialism, as very, your mother upgrades you early in the book, says, so why do you write about yourself constantly? Is there a bit of you that's always thinking, why would people be interested in this? I'm just a guy, I'm telling my own experience. What- like you, many people say that to me. I don't
1: think it's, I don't think the main generator of autobiographical writing. Of course, you, you, you really want to work on it so that people will be interested in it. But then, you know, Fictional writing has the same. You 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 want to mold it, but what generates it in the first place? It isn't exactly that same thing. And what generates it in the first place is, um, for me, what else can I write about? Every time I try to write about something else, I try to write fiction, and I thought it was okay. It was okay. And I this is many years ago, and I would send off like, here's my novel. Here's my start of my novel and um, people would, I'd have a chat with an editor who would say things like, right, well, there are some really good passages in this. I mean, I love this, this bit here, where your girlfriend's unfaithful to you and you don't know what to say to her, that really touched me. And then this bit here, and they would pick out three bits and they were all bits that were autobiographical. <laughs> and he would say, but here you see, you haven't quite got the character. <laughs> and after years of having this coming back to me, yes, this opening is great. And this bit, I love this bit. And you read this bit is as if it happened to you. And I'm thinking it did happen to me. But but trying to write a story about a man who crashes a car and then gets up and and gets lost in the middle of London or whatever, which didn't happen to me. And I'm thinking, well, what would he be doing now? And what would he be thinking now? And so the thing that generates autobiography is that it's what you can do, I think. Just like for some people, making up characters. And I've interviewed lots of novelists and the idea of creating this unreal world is a great solace to them. And, and they're on their own, and they step into this world which doesn't exist, and they can control it. If you can't do that, of course it'd be great to be able to do that, because you, then you could just uh, create endless other worlds, and you, you'd never run out of material. But autobiography, there's much more material than you'd think, <laughs> you <know?
0: laughs> And do, do you step around the sensibilities of the living in doing it? Well, you have to
1: admit, oh my God, what would I write if I didn't, if the god of autobiography said to me, do you know what, you can write anything, there's no boundaries, okay, and your readers will get it, but your ex-girlfriends will magically be unable to find the book in the shop, and when people describe it to them, they'll go deaf for a moment, and that person that you knew at school or your ex-friend over here or whatever, they will never know about it. My God, you could have a field day. It would be fantastic. And, of course, people do say they can say what they like about people when they've died. They have a tremendous opportunity. So, of course, you have to think about people who will read it. And, and and you know, you do have over the years I've had I've shown things to people and they've they've said and of course won't say which people blah 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 because not that people care but apart from those people but they come back and give me lots of notes I did not do this and I think ah you did you know people do you you really think you didn't do that you didn't hit me you didn't you you weren't horrible you really think that you've told yourself that you've lived with a lie and now you're clean you know people like that how could you write the truth people when confronted with the truth about how horrible they are don't go oh my god you're so right and it was so horrible i'm going to change my ways one in 20 would do that if that most would say that's a lie and how dare you and i hate you and i'm going to get you back which you, the autobiographer deals with all the time
0: yeah, I mean, Nausgaard is a presence in this book. I mean, you a quite literal presence in this book. Yes, yes, yes. Did... I mean, obviously, you've been writing memoir and autobiography in yes. journalism and in books for years and years and years before he became... But, but was his sort of gigantic success a, a sort of inspired? Did you feel like, ah, oh, my time for this sort of stuff has come?
1: I did uh, connect with it deeply. There was something about it. I actually... Yes, I, I loved it. And I studied it as well, because the first book, which is it starts out being um, very brutally about death. And then it goes, it goes on to when he was trying to organise a party when he was 16 at, on New Year's Eve. And, and then halfway through the book, he's 30 and his, he gets the news his father's died. And if you study it, you think it's it, it's narratively very well done because there's all these mini cliffhangers and so on, and and that the, these themes that are almost buried that keep coming up and all of that. So I like it on that level. But yes, I did connect with it partly because of I mean mainly because the when I re reread the first book, they, they sent me the first book. I'd I'd read it and I thought yes, it's about death and I, I like it and all this. And, and I'd reread it. And then I read it probably for a third time when my father was dying. And then I thought, oh, I, I'm going to call this guy. I want to interview him and so on. And as I say in the book, which was so weird, I thought I'm going to interview him because my father was like 40 days from death or whatever. I, I'm going to interview him about the death of his father. That's a great subject. And he, he's the, the whole of his... The whole sequence of his works kind of, uh, you know, that is the wellspring in some ways, his relationship with his father, who was actually horrible. I mean, uh, my father was not horrible to me. He was a bit absent and I did love him though. And I did always want to connect with him, which I very occasionally did. His father was horrible and mean and bullying and physically violent, which, which is um, a completely different thing. And I'd arranged to see him. And it turned out that I'd I'd set an alarm because I I was with my father as he was dying. And I I thought, uh, a few days before, I thought, oh, God, I, I, I don't want to forget that I'm going to see this guy in Sweden talk about his father's death. And the very odd thing that happened was that having left my father's deathbed with him dead, And me talking to him when he was dead and all of this and being in shock and it being so weird and more more stuff around that. The alarm went off the next morning, six o'clock the next morning. You have to get to the airport. Oh, my God, I'm going to see this guy today. And I went and um, had this journey to the south of Sweden. And and I thought on the way, oh, my God think about it from his point of view he's expecting somebody to come and say tell me about the death of your father that i've come to talk about the death of your father but i but i have to just say you know my father died 12 hours ago whatever it was and and and, and i thought well i've got to i've got to clear the air but he'll will he think i'm trumping him in some way like well your father we're talking about the death of your father but you know that was a while ago wasn't it you know i'm i'm like i've just we want to talk about this battle you were in, in 1914, but I've just come from the Battle of the Bulge or whatever it is, that name, by the way. Anyway, so I I said to him, we were driving towards his house and I thought, well, I better say it now. And I said, so, and I was still weird. And I said, "Um, so um, I've come to talk about death of your father. But I've just got to say that, you know, for me and I'm still in shock and, you know, it's very difficult because, you know, it was only a while ago. And my father, you know, he died and, and, and the jumble came out and I thought, have I made it clear what I'm talking about? Or does he just think I'm talking, not unusual for me, a lot of bollocks? And and I thought that must be what he's thinking. But <laughs> <clears throat> what do I say now? OK, stop. Let me go back and let me tell you. And it was very odd <laughs> and it's comic because it's tragic you know because yeah. you, you know you've just come from this very memorable and tragic moment and you're now in this situation where it's become embarrassing which is an interesting subject What what is embarrassment it's it's when you're trying to cover something up and failing so anyway yeah. which is the very which is a the theme about death itself so, yes, I did. Um, uh, funnily enough, I, I listened to the tape because I remember once we started getting into the conversation, I could close it off and I was very calm. Even though inside I w- wasn't. I, I could, And that's the value of getting into another subject when you're anxious. And, and also, incidentally, you're vaping, right? I've got this wow. theory about... Uh, tell me what you think about this because smoking and vaping and they're different things and I came up with this idea very strongly which is that when Richard Dole the scientist revealed that smoking was going to kill you or might kill you it made smoking more compelling more addictive because a better screen for your other worries now Smoking actually worried you. It wasn't just a pastime. Like say, I don't know, drinking special coffee or something. It wasn't just something that you enjoyed and blah, 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 a bit addictive. But now you had these dark shadows of, oh God, it's killing me. And the cycle of wanting to smoke and smoking and oh God, it's killing me, does a really good job of clearing away, can I write, does she love me and all of the things that, you know, preoccupy me all of the time. Uh, but I, I don't smoke, by the way, but uh, I gave up many years ago. And that's to do with um, fear of death and how having something that fills your mind with something else re- really can get away, you can, you can get away from terrible thoughts. By finding something
0: slightly less terrible. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, can I end by asking you just what... The subtitle, you say, Finding My Father. Do you feel in the course of writing the book that you did find him?
1: Yeah, I think I did in a way. That's a very good question because people have tried to ask me versions of that question that aren't so good as that. But that's right. Because people have said things like, did it make you less less sad or something like that? But it's true. I think I did. Yes. Uh, And as, you know there's this person that that you love and who is your parent and who you've sort of kidded yourself you have a normal relationship with but don't okay there's that person and now they're gonna die so you really that focuses your mind on what's my relationship with him can i mend it can i bond with him in some way and so who is he and all of that and you you begin to think about that person. And then writing that thing, because of course many people do that um, and don't write about it, but I think writing about it is a second stage of focusing on that exact thing. When somebody's slipping away, they do become more, more vivid. And so that's true. And then writing about it is a, it makes that process more, you feel it more keenly because you're having to focus your mind, not just on how you feel, but on how you, how you would tell others how you feel. And and that's a process of editing, getting rid of, well, making sense of the stuff that's, is fuzzy. So you're having to think about it even more. And it's true. It was like, being there again which in turn was like being with him as he slipped away as he slipped away it was like being with him during his life because i was thinking about it and the writing process makes it even more a
0: more powerful thing relationship yeah william leith thank you very much indeed